You may be seated this morning. How are we? Good. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope everyone had a great week. Uh, it is awesome, as always, to be here uh, with Mission Church to worship Jesus uh, as we continue through. Uh, I say continue. We've been stuck in these same six verses for three weeks in a row now, and I think that's awesome. I love going to a church that we dive this way into God's Word so that we know exactly, hopefully, <laughs> we know exactly what He is saying to us. So we will continue through our sermon series in Ephesians, In Christ Alone, The Life and Church Christ Builds. Now if you have been with us or have listened online over the past few weeks, you have heard this already. But just as a reiteration and a reminder of what we are looking at here, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. But before he moves on to other matters of the faith, he wants to make abundantly clear and make sure that they know something. And that they know what their identity is. And they know who they are in Christ. We see him basically in an uncontainable fit of joy break out into almost a song here, singing his praises to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why. And here's what he has done. And I'm excited to tell you about it. And I can't wait. But before I tell you all about that, i got to tell you how awesome God is. And then he tells us all of these things that we are going over and will continue to go over in the coming weeks. But we see him remind them over and over and over again that it is all in Christ. It is all courtesy of Jesus. We see in the first 14 verses the words in Christ or in him referring to Christ nine times. That's a lot. But Paul is wanting to make sure, look, you got to get this. You got to know who you are. You got to know whose you are. And you got to know why. And you got to know who did it. And you got to know that it is because Jesus died for you and that God declared you who you are as to why all of these things are true about you. So praise be to God for that. Now, Ephesians and really the whole New Testament continually draws our attention to this. If you will read carefully through all of the New Testament, it is constantly reminding you, do these things because of what Jesus has done, not in order that Jesus will do them. There's a reason we did not start preaching Ephesians chapter 4 and then jump backwards to Ephesians 1 through 3, besides the fact that OCD would kick in and we just can't do things out of order. Besides that, there's a reason Paul didn't write them in that order. Because it is not the obedience that leads to these truths. It is the truths that lead to these obedience. Okay? We see so many times in the New Testament. Maybe it's because I've been looking into this. Maybe it's because the word identity has been rolling in my mind for months now. And I just can't seem to kick it. But every time I seem to read in the New Testament, we see these titles for us as believers set off by commas meaning they don't have to be in the sentence, and yet God wants to remind us. So we see sentences like, need I remind you, brothers. The brothers doesn't have to be there in that sentence. They could just say, need I remind you, and go on. But he wants to remind you who he is reminding. Brothers, sisters, or he'll say things like, therefore, as beloved children, be imitators of Christ. Again, 
The beloved children doesn't have to be there. He could just say, therefore, be imitators of Christ. But he is reminding us so lovingly. One, because he knows we forget it. But two, he just wants to remind us how good he is. How good he is to do these things for us. And in in the New Testament, we are simply bombarded with familial terms. Brothers, sisters, children of God. God the Father, we we see this over and over and over again. So it is with that in mind today that we are going to look at the adoption of Christ, the adoption of us in Christ. We've seen over the past few weeks, or I guess two weeks, that in eternity past we were chosen by God, we were predestined by God. Today we will see what we are predestined for. So it is that we are chosen and predestined for something, and we see here specifically that we were predestined for adoption as sons. Now before I move on, um, my wife doesn't even know this yet, we may be moving to a tropical island soon. Uh, I got an email this week from a guy, he's a lawyer, and he's representative of my great uncle, who I've never met, nor never heard of, Um, but apparently he was really rich. Um, And if I just give this guy my bank account and social security number, which I've already sent that email out, like I'm going to get a lot of money, guys. So sorry, we're probably going to be leaving soon because, well, I mean, we can't really turn this deal down. So why are y'all looking at me like that? Is this too good to be true? Okay. The same way you feel when you read those emails, right? You, everybody in here has probably got one of those. And you start reading, you're like, what? I don't even know anybody in Nicaragua. But we read it, right? And we go, the reason this isn't true is because that would simply be too good to be true. That is what we should be feeling this morning as we read this. That is what I've been feeling all week long, reading about being adopted into Christ's family I read it and I think, there's no way. There is no way this can be true. There's no way God is going to usher me into his family and say, welcome home, son. Because I know myself, and I know a lot of you in this crowd as well. This should be mind-blowing to us this morning. Like, we can't hardly believe it. This is my favorite part of the order of salvation or the Ordo Salutis for Todd and Chris Dindy. Everybody else just thinks I just spoke in tongues. Like, they're they're the only ones that know what that means. No. The Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. There are steps to this, right? There are, not that they always, anyway, there's an order to this, okay? This is my favorite part to peer into. Because it is in and through this salvation, in and through this adoption, that we see God taking it a step further than he really has to take it, okay? This is not just my favorite because my wife and I are adopting a son. That, that definitely helps. But the whole reason we are adopting a son is to give a glimpse of this adopting love of Christ. We get to see a, God, a glimpse of God's gracious love in earthly adoption, showing that love of welcoming home a, a child welcoming home someone that is not biologically part of the family and treating them just as they are. 
biologically part of that family. And this is what God does to us, and it is beautiful. You see, the reason this is my favorite part is that we see God doing a lot of things in salvation. He redeems us, right? He could and still be God, as far as I understand. He could call us, elect us, justify us, regenerate us, and forgive us, and then keep us at an arm's reach and still be God. He could still forgive us through Jesus. This is all through Jesus and the cross and resurrection. But this is how we do it, right? We look at somebody, we go, I forgive you, but I ain't ever going to forget, right? We keep people, at, or we may really truly forgive them, but we always kind of keep, I don't know if they're going to hurt me again. I don't know if I should trust them fully again. I don't, I don't know they really, really hurt me that last time. I'm going to kind of just make sure I guard myself so we keep them at this arm's distance. But God not only forgives us, which is already uncanny to think about because we know the sin and the wretchedness that is in our heart, but God not only forgives us, he not only gives us right standing in his eyes, he not only redeems us, but he takes it a shocking step further. And he says, not only are you perfect, not only am I going to treat you as if you are perfect, but I am going to welcome you as son or daughter. Instead of keeping you at arm's reach, he does the exact opposite and draws you literally closer than you can even imagine. He draws you as close as possible and then draws you even closer into his family. So we think of family. Some of you in here have different ideas than others in here. How many of you have heard or said, well, you can't choose family. Yeah, me too. There's reasons for that. There's reasons that's a saying, right? When things are going crazy or you look over at your cousins and you're like, what are they doing? <laughs> or you're, never mind. You look at your family, they're crazy, right? And you say we can't choose family. But if you are in Christ, God did choose you to be in his family. God can choose his family. God did choose his family, and he chose for you to be in his family forever. And this is the incredible news that I get to share with you today. However, I've known, I don't know how long, but it's been a while. It's been multiple weeks, if not months, that I've known I'm preaching this topic on this day. Uh, we had the preaching calendar. I saw it. I've known for a while. So it's been rolling around in my brain for quite a while. But as I was studying this week, and as I thought, oh, I know pretty much how this sermon's going to go. Uh, adoption, we're going to do this, that, and the other. I got this. Uh, I think God just likes laughing at me and, and changing my trajectory midweek. Um, it's still incredible news. It is still my favorite part to get to preach to you today. I am still all jacked up on Mountain Dew this morning to preach this to you this morning. I don't even drink Mountain Dew. I'm just all jacked up because of it. It is great, great news. But after this week, it is great news to me for a whole different set of reasons. In addition to the ones I already knew about. So hopefully, some of you will probably get to the end and go, Yeah, well, it took you so long to learn that. That's fine. Okay? Just 
Let me, let me have my moment. And some of you will go, I've not thought of that in that way either. And I pray that God will use that to then cause you to worship him more. So today we will look at God's adopting love. We will look what that means. We will look at the implications thereof. And in a moment of unprecedented history at Mission Church, you are going to get an uber-baptist-y sermon two weeks in a row. And there are five C's, letter C, at the end of this sermon. Southern would be so proud of us. Southern would love these sermons. So it's five C's as to what the applications of knowing God has adopted us into his family are. Okay, so let's get going. First, to be adopted means to be taken by choice into a relationship. If you break it down in the, in the Latin, ad means to, optio, which I'm not pronouncing correctly, but that's just our, our redneck English here in Bowling Green. Optio means choosing. So for God to adopt us is just another way of saying he chose to be in relationship with us. But not just any relationship. That would be good news in and of itself. He adopted us as sons. Now this means you too, ladies, so don't get discouraged. And this is the, it's good news to you that he wrote it this way. Back when he wrote this, women didn't have the rights that they have now. They couldn't legally inherit things. They weren't the next in line to inherit a kingdom or an estate or any of that stuff. It was the firstborn son who was in line to inherit things. So therefore, to adopt even daughters as sons or even women as sons means God is even putting you in that place of inheritance. You are even in line to inherit the kingdom of God. Regardless of gender, if you are in Christ, you are set and loved just like Christ. This is good news. So we are adopted as sons, meaning God is our Father. We see the word Abba, meaning Father, in the New Testament Hundreds of times, if not thousands. It's, it's all over. This is basically all Jesus called him when he was speaking to God the Father. But we don't see that in the Old Testament. The word Abba is there, but it is never once referring to the father of an individual, meaning God is the father of an individual. Now, God is the father of Israel, words there. God is the father of nations, the word is there. But it is never an individual case. And Jesus comes along and starts calling him father all the time, basically calling him dad all day long, and it caused problems. But the thing is, is when Jesus taught us how to pray, what did he say we should start with? Our Father. Our Dad. Our Father who art in heaven. This is how we are to understand the relationship that we have with God. This means if we piece all of Scripture together, when God says to Jesus, yes, he was speaking directly to Jesus. But when God says, in him I am well pleased, because we are in Christ, that now applies to us. In us, God is well pleased because of Jesus. Some of you are thinking, well, he don't know what I did yesterday. Yes, he does. 
He knows exactly what you did yesterday. He knew what you were going to do, and yet he set his adopting love on you anyway. And in you, he is well pleased because of what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished, the way Jesus lived, and the way Jesus died. This means that unlike us, and I'm not going to say everyone, I only have one kid, so I, can, I, can, I have an out here. So far, I've only met one of my children, I guess I should say. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't have a favorite kid that he is going to show different treatment to. Okay? I mean, we all watch This Is Us in this church, I think. If Jack and Rebecca have a favorite kid, like, we have no chance of not having a favorite kid, okay? They're the perfect parents. We are just trying to live up to that show. If you don't watch it, you really should. It's awesome. But, but God, not God, okay? He plays no favorites. He doesn't look at some and think, well, I'm going to love them differently than I'm going to love this one because it is all based on what? Jesus. So it is not based on our performance. It says in verse 3 that we receive all, all the same spiritual blessings that Christ earned with his life. That means we are not looked at any differently than he looks at Jesus. This is the email from the lawyer in Nicaragua. Like, this is too good to be true. It is too good to be true to think that God looks at us and all of our wretchedness and all of our sin and all of our troubles and all of our trials and all of everything that we do and looks at us and sees Jesus. And yet, this is what Scripture tells us. Now, he knows the difference between Jesus and us in a literal sense. But just like you know the difference in your kids and you treat them the same, or at least you should, love them the same, care for them the same, even though you know this one's this one and this one's that one, this is what God does. There's no distinction made between us and Jesus when we are adopted through the cross and through the resurrection. Because Jesus took all of our sin... And gave us all of his righteousness. So there is no distinction made between his perfection and our perfection. Because it is given to us, imputed to us through Jesus. I read a story in one of the commentaries this week. It was taken out of a Reader's Digest somewhere in the 70s. And a young mother wrote in and wrote these words. It says, I stayed with my parents... For several days after the birth of our first child. One afternoon, I remarked to my mother that it was surprising that our baby had dark hair since both my husband and I are fair. She said, well, your daddy has black hair. I said, but, but mom, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. And with an embarrassed smile, she said the most wonderful words I've ever heard. I always forget. This is how we are seen by God. We have always, remember, we are talking about something that takes place millennia ago. We are always, we have always been his children. He has always been our father. So long that he forgets we are adopted children and he just treats us as children. Get this, though. The, 
This is the unbelievable part because we all know our past and we all know some of us came to faith later in life or some of us even earlier in life but we remember how we used to act or how God is slowly sanctifying us. This means though that there is literally not one single second of your entire earthly existence that you were not already God's chosen child. If you are a Christian in here today, if you are in Christ You were always God's child because He set His adopting love on you well before you were born. Now, you ask questions that are logical. What if I had died before I came to Christ? Then you probably would have gone to hell. Guess who knows when you're going to die? And guess who knows when you're going to come to to Christ? It is God that has set His love on you before you did anything or didn't do anything. If you are a saved believer today, it was because for whatever reason, in eternity past, God set His adopting love on you and He made you His. Romans 4.17 says that God calls into existence things that do not exist. Now this is not just in creation where he spoke everything into motion, this is, he names it and claims it the real way. He names you child and then goes about setting you to be a child. He goes about setting into motion a plan to make you child. And here's the thing, he never fails. If he says, I'm adopting that one, he's adopting that one. And for whatever reason, if you are a Christian in here, based on nothing you have done, based on not your performance yesterday, the day before, or any day of your life, or your future performance, He set His adopting love on you. This means that even in your sin, even in your enmity towards God, even in your blatant rebellion, even in your idolatry, that God was orchestrating it all to bring you, Christian, beloved, to a particular moment of time, to a particular place, to a particular person who was going to deliver to you a particular message, the gospel, and you were going to hear your father's voice for the first time ever in your entire life. Whether that happened when you were 10, whether that happens when you're 99, God is orchestrating a time where he will call to you and you will hear his voice and you will call him father. John 10.27 says that his sheep hear his voice and follow. I don't know about all of you. My dad was the disciplinarian of our house. That was the one, one of the ways my mom definitely submitted to him. She, she got me with a fly swatter one time. I laughed. She cried way harder than I ever did. And she never did it again. That, that was it for her. She felt bad. I felt great. Until dad got home, she told him the story. I cried that time, but that's okay. Okay, she, she turned that over to him that day. I, I have a funny story about that too that I can't tell now, but ask me about it. It's great. My dad's a jerk. All right, so because of this, because of this though, it didn't matter what I was getting into or how loud it was around me or how far away I was. This happened across a gym a lot of times. My dad would see me doing something I should not be doing. He would daddy voice over to me my first and middle name 
and I would immediately stop what I was doing. It didn't matter if I thought I was right or not. There was no arguing with daddy's voice, not his disciplined voice. I knew right there, hey, whatever it is you're doing, don't do that anymore. I stopped in my track. This is God's voice to his children. When he is ready for them to know him as father, he speaks to them. They stop in their tracks. They turn and they call him father. It is irresistible. Romans 8.28. This is a verse that all of us have heard probably hundreds if not thousands of times. Of all the verses that people can quote, this is one of them. If they've been in church much, they've heard this over and over again. And it says this, And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I want you to take a second and in your own head answer the question, who does this promise apply to? You should really think about it. I'll read it again. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So it says that good and bad will work together to be good in the life of those who are called according to His purpose. Everybody got who it applies to in their head? If you were anything like me up until Tuesday afternoon of this week, you just thought that applies to Christians. I have broadened my perspective. This is where the trajectory changed for me. That it applies to Christians and anyone that will ever be a Christian. So even people that are living a life of sin right now and have nothing to do with God, if they are God's chosen adopted child, we don't know when that's going to happen in real time. But it says those who are called according to His purpose. When did that happen? According to Ephesians 1. Before the foundations of the earth. It wasn't when they came to know Jesus. That's not when this promise started applying to them. And that is what I thought until Tuesday. But now we know that if all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, and he did that before we were born, that means he began that process of orchestrating those events then, before time began, so that you... Christian, if you are in this room, in Christ, that you would come to faith in a particular moment, in a particular time. It was God's plan to adopt those He was going to adopt, to bring them into His very family. He did this before time began, therefore the promise that all things working together for good means He is working out every last detail to bring that child home. Just like right now somewhere in Haiti, there's a little boy running around probably with no shoes on. He's probably hungry. He's probably not got much love today or any day of his life possibly. He's probably unaware that this isn't exactly how life should be for him. 
He's probably oblivious. He is probably, if he's even making decisions yet, making the decision to just make the best of whatever he's got. And to live however he is going to live. And yet, God is orchestrating a specific time and a specific plane for me to take, my wife to take, to Haiti, to pick that little boy up. And that little boy will be my son. And I will be that little boy's daddy. But you know what he's not doing right now? He's not praying that some nice white couple from Kentucky would adopt him. He doesn't even know to be asking for that yet. He is oblivious to that even being an option to him. We have been working on it for two and a half years now. We have been orchestrating the paperwork and filling out this form seven times and paying this check seven times and all of this and a stack of paperwork that would make you sick. He just knows this is life. He just knows this is normal. And yet, unbeknownst to him, there are these people working and working and working to make the details work so that Stephanie and I can walk to a specific place and he can walk to a specific place and we meet and we become a family. And this is all of us. This is every Christian in this room right now. God, unbeknownst to us, moving in a way, moving in real time to bring about the plans He set in motion before there was even time. And we didn't even know to ask. We weren't praying for it. We weren't asking for it because we didn't even know. Ephesians will go on to say we were dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And this was just life. This was just how we were going to ride it out. And God had different plans that we were unaware of. Do you really, really get that? This is the mind-blowing part. Is we're just floating through this life and God Himself when we didn't even know better, we didn't even know that we didn't know better. And God, for some reason, we were ready and willing to live in our sin. Not even ready and willing for some of us. We were really loving it. We were having a great time living in our sin, not calling out to God, not asking He would adopt us, not asking that He would do anything, basically ignoring Him or even worse, and he set his adopting love on us through his sovereignty, placed you around his table, placed you next in line to inherit a kingdom. If you are a saved, gospel-believing Jesus follower in here today, there was never a second, not one single second of your life that God was not viewing you as his child and him as your father. Even in your sin. Because again, this happened before you could sin. Or not sin. This is based on Jesus. This is based on what He knew He was going to do. That Jesus knew He was going to go to the cross. He knew He was going to pay the price for your ransom. 
And he knew which ones were which. And he knew you were his child. J.I. Packer, who every time I bring him up, brother's still alive and kicking. I don't really get it. But he, he is still of sound mind and body and still. So he wrote this years ago. But he has since even said, I, that I, hey, I still agree with what I'm saying here. It says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. We have to get this. And to understand this is not just some passing phrase. God's our Father. That it is an amazing thing that God would look at us and adopt us into His family. He loves us so much as our Father, which only applies, by the way, we are not all children of God. Only in Christ are you a child of God. So we get to call Him Father because He was willing to send Jesus to suffer and die in our place so that we might be what Ephesians 1 tells us we were called to be holy and blameless. We don't get that on our own. We get that through Jesus. Then we get the right to call Him Father. And it is an amazing thing. He loves us with an all-encompassing love just like He loves Jesus. In Christ. We have to know and we have to realize this has nothing to do with us. Because of Jesus, God views us this way. Because of Jesus, He treats us this way. Because of Jesus, He loves us this way. He adopts us this way. It is all about Jesus that we reap what Christ has sown. But there's a flip side of the coin. Because all of that should, hopefully, sound awesome. I want some of that, is what all of you should be thinking. I want to continue in this love of God where He loves me as a child and everything is unicorns and rainbows. This is not a bad flip to the coin. This is not where the sermon goes to bad news. This is where I told you earlier that I'm thankful for the adoption as sons for a whole new set of reasons. This is where that happens. To do that, if you would, or if you can just listen, either way, Romans 8. It's 15 through 17 is where we read. This is another place in Scripture that Paul specifically talk, talks about adoption and our adoption in Christ. There are multiple places. We read one earlier today in Galatians as well. Uh, this is definitely one of those sermons where I had to cut things out so I didn't keep you here all day. So 
If there's one of your favorite verses about adoption that I don't cover, I apologize. But Romans 8, 15 through 17 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Yes, heirs of God. Yes, fellow heirs with Christ. Yes, provided we suffer with him in order. Oh, hey, what was that? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is where Scripture gets twisted by way too many churches, way too many pastors, way too many people that are trying to deceive people into thinking, you turn to Jesus and everything will be all right. You turn to Jesus and God will be good to you the rest of your life. You turn to Jesus, you become a Christian and everything's good. And here's the thing. Right now, all of you are thinking, yeah, what a heretic would say that. We all point them out on TV, right? But our brains are really powerful. And sitting in these chairs this morning, we can go, yeah, absolutely, the Bible does not say that. But we, when we are in the throes of pain and suffering, that's when we start to go, what? wait a minute. I'm following Jesus. I'm faithful to Jesus why is this happening to me? Why is God not answering my prayers the way that I think He should be answering my prayers? Why is God not... And well, I'm not praying for a Ferrari here, guys. I just want, you know, a day of work to go okay. I just want this to happen. I just want this person to be nicer to me. And God just isn't answering it. Does God, does God really love me? Is God mad at me? What, is there something I need to to change, to, to be better in God's eyes? Does, does God, I, I, okay, I know God loves me, but does he like me? It, why is he doing this to me? And what Paul is reminding us here in Ephesians and in Romans is that God chose to set his adopting love on you and nothing you can do can make you change his mind or doubt that ever. If you are truly in Christ. Why? Because it's not based on your performance. It's not based on your Tuesday afternoon. It is based on Jesus. And his life. His perfect life. His death. His resurrection. But you know we read verse 3 in Ephesians 1. as We get all these spiritual blessings. And that sounds awesome. Until we realize suffering is on that list. Suffering is a spiritual blessing. When you are suffering in Christ, it is not a curse. It is not something that you have done wrong. It is a blessing to you. We get to be like Jesus in this way. We get the privilege to be utterly reliant on God. We get things taken away from us that serve no purpose in our life but distracting us from who God is. And He will sometimes rip that violently out of your hands because you don't even realize that it's serving as a distraction. You think it's just some good gift God gave to you. 
And it is something that is distracting you from God. And he is saying, it is a blessing to be in a position where you have nothing to hold on to except for me. Because I'm there with you. Britt Merrick is a pastor out in California preaching on suffering. He says, the more I lose, the more I worship. The more I lose, the more of a treasure Jesus becomes. Think about Job. Job was given some of the worst news in all of history, all at once. This wasn't spread out over his life. This is like two days. Hey, all your kids and their husbands and wives are dead in one event. All of your livestock, yep, they're gone too. All of your money, all of your this. Oh, and by the way, your health too. And your wife hates you because <laughs> your breast stinks. That's in there. But when he gets that news, <laughs> right? Job Verse 20, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He just got the worst news in the history of mankind, basically. And he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Russell Moore says it this way, Why would Wall Street satisfy us when we are set to inherit mountain ranges and sunsets? Why do we rely on all the bonus stuff? If God has given us everything, this is the line, in Jesus, but he blesses us with a few things. When he takes those away, you still have everything because everything is bound up in Jesus. But we focus on the extras. See, when all is lost and we look to Abba, Father, to save us, not our stuff, not our bank account, not our friends, our schedules, our jobs, our kids, our spouses, our power, you name it, when we are relying on those things and we get the opportunity to rely on Jesus and Jesus alone, or on God and God alone, we look more like Jesus, because that is how Jesus lived his entire life, fully reliant on God. He said things like, I can do nothing that my Father doesn't preordain or send me to do. He is fully reliant on God. If I give you infinity dollars, and you give me back 10 billion of them, how many do you have? Math lesson. Infinity dollars. So when God gives you Jesus, and then he gives you a good job, a good family, good health, but he takes those things back sometimes, what are you left with? Everything. Infinity dollars. Because you have Jesus And you can rely on Jesus to carry you through. And you can rely on Jesus to be the answer. That is a spiritual blessing. That is being treated like and being loved like God loved Jesus. You will suffer. 
But we twist it up in our minds, even after reading the Bible explicitly tell us otherwise, and think that God's pleasure depends somewhat on our performance and on how we are doing and how we are carrying out our weeks, our seasons of life. So when he is blessing us with good things, we must be doing pretty good. When he is not blessing us, or when rough, tough things come along, we must be somehow disappointing to him. See, the problem is that both of these are taking our eyes off of the truth, taking our eyes off of Jesus. We are focusing God's blessing me for me, God's cursing me for me. Either way, you're not looking at Jesus, which is what the whole point of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Christ, in Him, in Christ is saying. There was nine of those. You just thought, man, he's really sticking with that in Christ thing. I only said six. Paul has said it nine times in 14 verses. He wants you to get this. It has nothing to do with you. And furthermore, he promises to be there with you. Charles Spurgeon, we, I should just let him preach this sermon, actually. Just use quotes. But it says, as sure as God ever puts his children into the furnace of affliction, he will be in the furnace with them. And look guys, the furnace is hot. It's not a good place to be. It is not a fun, pleasurable place to be. Nobody wants to be in the furnace of affliction. But you know what's worse is being in the furnace of affliction alone. And God says he will be with you. Remember Romans Right? We just read verses 15 through 17. Now pretend that your Bible was written without the headings and the breaks and paragraphs. Because we added those in later. Those are not quote-unquote divinely inspired. So imagine, Paul says this, you have the spirit of adoption as sons, provided you suffer with Jesus. So right there we're thinking, man, that's some mighty important fine print you got going on there, Paul. I don't, I don't really like what you're saying. That sounds tough. The next verse, Paul, a good writer, knows what people are thinking, right? He says, for, so even though that is true, you must suffer with Jesus to be glorified with Jesus. For, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is reminding us that suffering is real, but he is reminding us of a better truth here. He is reminding us that because we are adopted by God, that we are now set to inherit a kingdom. And nothing can change that status. Nothing can change that identity because God set it in motion before time began. So it's definitely not based on something you did or didn't do. And he goes on to say, when you get there, and you get to see what is truly in store for you. You see what Jesus said He is going to prepare for you. And you get to see Jesus face to face. You're not going to look at Him and go, yeah, but why didn't I get that promotion? Or why did you give my mama cancer? Or why did you take a child from 
me. And these are all very tough things to even think about. And Paul is reminding us, you know what? When you see the splendor that is set before you because you are God's adopted child and you are in his family, you're not even going to remember that. It's going to be like a bruise that you have no idea how you got. Everybody's got one of those. Hey, what do I do to my arm? That's how, no one remembers what those felt like, right? Because they were such insignificant things. And that is what God is telling us. When you see Jesus face to face, that is how you will think about the sufferings of this world. They will be nothing. But we forget that in the moment of our greatest hurts. We forget that we are God's chosen sons when the pain is great. We just want the pain to go away. We forget the truth here. 2 Corinthians 4.17 tells us that these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for the very glory we just described. We are in set, set to inherit the kingdom of the Most High God and we trade it for a bowl of soup like Esau did. Except our bowl of soup is just a better life for a lack of suffering or I don't want this to happen to me again. Because in the moment, most of us would trade it because we're not thinking far enough ahead and we're not thinking of the truth that Ephesians is telling us here. But the promise that we have about our sufferings is that every second of it was not only to bring you to a point where you came to believe in Jesus, to realize your sonship, but every second of your suffering has meaning. It has purpose. It is doing something in you. It is reminding you that God loves you as a son because of suffering. You're going to hear this phrase a lot because it's, I can't get rid of it in my thinking. God is not good because blah. God does blah because he is good. And that includes suffering. That includes kids dying at a young age. That includes, that doesn't just include the money and the promotions. This is everything because God's goodness is so abounding that these things happen to show you that you are a son of God. This is a promise that people who aren't God's children have, do not have. They have no assurance that their suffering means a darn thing. It is just a meaningless random act in the universe. They have no promise that anyone is in the furnace with them. This is why family is so important. This is why God reiterates that we are the family of God. we get to see our inheritance and be with our Father for all of eternity. And this, according to Ephesians, is for one reason and one reason only. You see, the end of this sentence says, all of this stuff we've talked about, He chose you, He predestined you, He elected you, He did all of these things, He adopted you as sons for the praise of His Glorious grace. 
This means even our adoption. One of the greatest things I can tell you. Hey, you're God's child. It's one of the greatest sentences you can ever hear. Is still all about Jesus. Pay special attention to the prepositions of this sentence. We are adopted to God through Jesus by His Spirit for His glory. Who seems to be the major subject of that sentence? Us or God? We get the adoption. Yes, that's awesome. But it is all for His glory. It is all about Him. Because God is so good, God is so loving, God is so gracious that He pours that out onto us by making us His children. So what are the applications here? We have five of these, but they're very brief. They all start with C. Didn't really do that on purpose, it just kind of happened. But Adoption should, one, comfort us. Not to the point of doing nothing, not to the point of being lazy. Oh, we're adopted, I'm God's chosen child. I I don't have to do anything. We need to rest though. Rest in that identity because that identity was sealed and purchased by Jesus. There's nothing you can do. You can't improve upon what Jesus did, so stop trying to. You also can't lessen what Jesus did, so stop worrying so much that you are. Take comfort in the one who began your adoption will bring it to completion as well. Charles Spurgeon once again said it this way. He who counts the stars and calls them by name is in no danger of forgetting his own children. Child of God, you cost Christ far too much for him to forget you. So in the throes of of suffering in the throes of God what are you doing because I can't answer that question for you because I don't always know what God is doing in a particular moment praise be to Jesus I don't know because that means God's ways are higher than my ways his thoughts are higher than my thoughts but it should comfort us to know that he has not forgotten you he is not pushing you to the side he is not unadopting you so take comfort in knowing that if if God knows you here today. He will always know you as son. Two, adoption calls us to sacrifice our lives. It costs us. That's two C's in one. It's just a bonus, so don't get too far ahead of yourself. But it calls us, it costs us. Calls us to sacrifice our lives for the one who sacrificed his in our place. We cannot simply say, I accept the terms of your adoption, but I am not going to carry out what you call me to do after it, which is Ephesians 4 through 6. We'll get to that, but we have to understand that provided we suffer with Christ, meaning it's not a maybe not a possibly some of you will suffer with Christ it is this is a sure thing that all of you will if you are in Christ you will suffer but Christ is worth it our adoption calls us to lay down our lives for the one who is worthy because he laid down his life for ours 
Three, adoption changes us. Just like earthly adoption, it changes our identity, our behavior, our thoughts. Ben Hazel was not always Ben Hazel. He wasn't really always Ben either, but that's beside the point. He, he was not always a Hazel. When he got here, guess what? He changed his name. Guess what else he did? Slowly but surely, he changed his behavior and the rules that he followed and what he did during the week and all of these things. Not just because he came to America, because he got adopted into a family that had different rules than the one he left. It changes us. And again, we have, we'll talk about this in Ephesians 4-6. through 6. But we have to now, right now, understand the order. God's adoption changes us, not us changing leads to God adopting us. So we don't just adopt these behaviors hoping God will see us and welcome in, into his family. He welcomes us into his family, therefore we live out a called, changed life. Four, adoption commands us to evangelize. When we truly see how undeserving we are to be adopted into God's family, we want that joy spread to as many people as possible. And since I don't know who God's children, chosen children are, I go preach a whosoever gospel to the world. I go tell everyone the joy I feel for being God's child, you can feel that too. We go to all the nations hoping to make people realize their identity as God's son. We can't save them. We can't change them. God has already taken care of that. But since we don't know, we go. Five, and the last one, adoption causes us to truly and genuinely worship. When we see this beautiful truth for what it is, we cannot help but worship God. Because He did it all. It's all Him. We had nothing to do with it. The only thing we brought to the table was a real big mess and a whole bunch of sin. And God said, I'll take that and trade you my righteousness. It was a horrible trade on his side of things. And yet, this is the trade he made for his glory to welcome you to his family, into his household, around his table forever and there's nothing that we can do to change it we worship him for his goodness god is not good because he adopted us god adopted us because he is good we have to get that order in mind so as a reminder god chose us he predestined us and in a radical step of amazing grace he adopts us into his very family I told Eric yesterday, I have no idea how I'm landing this thing. So here's the crash landing. God chose us. God predestined us. He is worthy of worship. So let's do that. Let's worship him here today. So I'm going to pray. We're going to do communion. And then we're going to sing to God and praise him for this. Pray with me.